Tartar Project, episode 20. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for tuning in for the first time. Whichever one of those is true, I truly appreciate you listening. So thank you, thank you. Today, we have Chris Stang and Andrew Steinthal of one of my other beloved brands, which I feel like you hear week in and week out because I don't have brands that don't resonate with me on the podcast. Shockingly, I know, kind of sarcastic, sorry. Not really sorry. The infatuation. If you know me, and maybe if you don't even know me and you just follow me across the internet and everything, you know that I do love food. And part of that was rooted in my introduction to the infatuation, formerly known as the Immaculate Infatuation. I've known these guys for almost 10 years at this point. I've really seen a lot of ups and downs with them. They've built an impressive business. They are pretty much changing the way that food media is done uh, through experiential, through a bunch of unique approaches. Well, unique at the time and definitely ahead of the curve, like their multimedia strategy using multiple Instagram handles, which is popular today, but it definitely wasn't popular when they started doing it in 2014, 2015. They also used Twitter really early, jumping into conversations to help expand the brand, which was super authentic to the platform. They were one of the first brands that I saw utilizing SMS before the whole chatbot and AI craze took over. And that's probably back in 2016, 2017. Don't quote me on the date. It definitely could be a little bit fuzzy, but needless to say, long story short, TLDR, whatever you want to go with, they've been early on a bunch of different strategies. And I just really love the infatuation as a brand. And without any more delay, uh, actually one more delay, if you like the Tartar Project, even if you don't, five stars on iTunes goes a really long way with me for helping expand my audience and maybe follow me on Spotify. That'd be cool. Or just tell your friends about the Tartar Project. Tweet it, Instagram story, tag me, what have you. Anyway, thank you once again for the umpteenth time for listening. Without further delay, Stang and Steinthal. Here we are. Tartar Project. I'm not sure what episode this actually is. Uh, TBD. 123. 123. Season uh, 10. Season 10. Lots of success. I'm sitting here with two old friends uh, that created a brand that I absolutely adore. Uh, arguably one of the first brands that I fell in love with back in the day. Because it honor. marries. Yeah, it's true. And I don't think I've ever told you that. But I've implied it through actions. I felt I it. We felt it. Yeah. Like it's a pretty strong love. It's but, pretty strong, man. I mean, you've bought the first ticket to pretty much every event that we've put on sale in the history of this company. You have made it a point to be the first purchase at the moment things go on sale. So we whether or not I can go. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I think there was one time where you were like the third person that bought, but I still told you. You lied. Because yeah. <laughs> you knew it Definitely. was so important to yeah. me. <laughs> anyway, I'm sitting in the Infatuation HQ with Stang and Steinthal, the weathered noble co-founders of this amazing brand. Is that how bad we look? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Probably true though. This Dude, is an intervention. Thank you. We um, need it. We need it. <laughs> I feel like the Marlboro man has been on a horse for too long. <laughs> Can you give the Tartar Project listeners a rundown of what the infatuation is in your words? I did this yesterday. The sign thaws up this time. Okay. The infatuation is a restaurant discovery platform. We help you find the 
right restaurant or bar for the right experience. So if you're looking to take out a special somebody on a first date, that's a very different experience than taking out your husband or wife or longtime boyfriend or girlfriend. It's also a different experience than entertaining your parents who are in town or going out to a bar to find some action if you're just looking for something on the night or, you know, going someplace late night. So it's all about finding the right restaurant for the right experience. And it's all a one way opinion. So, you know, we, Chris and I started out, we were both in the music business and uh, had very strong opinions about restaurants, but we were certainly not uh, critics or experts by, by any means and, and grew into voices that people trusted because of how relatable it was. So that's kind of how we've spread this around the country. We found other people who were also regular people, but really into this kind of stuff to be the writers. We've never hired full-time restaurant critics, food writers, people who've who've been in the game before. It's always been folks who've been publicists or actors or hairdressers or lawyers or, you know, working at tech companies and cosmetics and who just were really, really into into going out to eat. I love I going know out your to turn, eat. Phil. You know the company. Why don't you tell us what you think it is? A retweet. Okay, great. That's exactly what I thought it was. Great. Perfect. Uh, the infatuation is the first place I go whenever I want to know where I want to eat if I don't actually know. That's great. That's what we're trying to do. Also a gut check if somebody says a restaurant and I haven't heard of it. And if you've reviewed it and either slayed it or not, it's kind of dead in the water. That's all, that's all we aim to be. Yeah. Your barometer for a great or slayed <laughs> when it comes to restaurants. That's it. Yeah. That's quote card if I've ever heard one. Um, <laughs> Let's take a bunch of steps back. Where'd you guys grow up? You didn't grow up together. You met later in life. We'll get to that. But I grew up in Den Chris. I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Andrew, I grew up in Scarsdale, New York, representing the 914 here in Westchester. Sometimes I like to say I'm from the city, but that's a lie. I wish I had the digital air horn to just do like bam, 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 bam. After yeah. that, that was like a nice little drop. I like that. <laughs> When you're growing up, Batman <laughs> Scoop needs to just like be hyping up Andrew when he does that pitch. It's good. <laughs> Did you guys give a shit about school while you were growing up? No, no. I was a cumulative 2.57 GPA student. So tells you all you need to know. I wasn't great at school, but I was really good at college radio. That's, <laughs> that's ultimately where we met too, which is why it's exciting to be on the microphones. Because <laughs> back in the day when, when Stang had this microphone, it was DJ Turbo. True. That was actually his name before House of Stang. True. So wow. it's just yeah. a shame that that never translated to the social media networks so that everybody doesn't call him Turbo still. But you were when just I too met early. Him, when I met him, everybody called him Turbo. Yeah, And true. when you guys met, it's I, I, we actually have an unsuspecting hero to thank for bringing you both together. And it didn't happen in the music industry as the listeners may have thought it through your press. You actually met because of a gentleman by the name of Carson Daly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> He's a very influential person in my life for, throughout my, my informative young years. So. so if anybody remembers Total Request Live, which you should. It's so funny, though, that most people don't now of a certain True. age. We, were at, we did a panel at, I think it was at WeWork um, a couple months, like wah, a year ago. Wah. Exactly. Uh, and it was the first time when we mentioned that we met on the set of TRL that we just had like a whole bunch of people like blinking at us in the audience, no reference for what that was. And it was probably one of the first times that it happened because typically over the span of 10 years, you would, especially 10 years ago, you'd mentioned Carson Daly and total request live. And people are like, Oh wow. Imp- impressive. Yeah. Now they have no, no idea. The, Unbelievable. the reality is though, we actually were brought together by the music business because there's a guy named John Landman who works at a company called The Syndicate who we both talked to when we were both 
radio music directors at our respective college radio stations back in the day. And at a CMJ music convention in the year 2000 was putting a group together of his like six favorite music directors from around the country. And the two of us both got the same call and then wound up meeting on set at TRL that day, as you speak about, and destiny's child was the guest and they sat us right behind Carson in the beginning. We weren't freaking out enough and they removed us promptly, um, for younger, more excited women um who were who were feeling it so which is weird though because stang still had his shirt off with a sign so that was painted, yeah. yeah i painted jump and jump on my chest it was i had a good plan but huh. poorly executed, had, it was a, it was a it was a good day though for us on the tube because we had we both requested songs just that got the in tube? there yeah that was what the t- they used to call the tv oh is that right the tube. So this, is, this, is the, this is the late six early 60s yeah <laughs> uh, I, I requested <laughs> blink 182 uh, I'm pretty what's sure. What's my age again? I th- it was either what's my age again or all that. I think it was all the small things. And ah. Stang requested Limp Bizkit, Nookie. Roland. Ah, oh, Roland. Oh, yeah. Much, yeah. much better song. <laughs> <laughs> no better place. You actually made a request live. Yeah. A few people yeah. have been able to do that. Yeah, it's really very Limp Bizkit had it. Like that, like those songs were kind of, like they were horrible, but they were also kind of good. Yeah. And now he's a film director. So. Really? Yeah. Fred Durst directs movies now. Successfully? Fred Durst directs movies now. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know whether or not. So you guys parted ways, uh, had a connection, probably knew that you wanted to work together. Uh, and I only know that because I read that in a Forbes article, I think, uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, randomly, for whatever reason, when we met, we were uh, immediately sort of certain that we were going to build something together. Um, part of that might just have been that we were like 20 years old and had had a few beers and thought we were going to take over the world. But it was kind of a... Th- a thread that you know sort of surfaced over and over again throughout our friendship that i guess led us to where we are now and you guys didn't actually start well i mean you form a company from the get-go for immaculate infatuation but when did you start like kind of riffing and be like you know like why don't we fucking do this 2009 we we actually launched in april of 2009 when i say launched i mean wrote restaurant reviews put them into a quote-unquote blog format sent an email to everybody that we knew and that was like the launch, but, um, there really was the beginning of it. And then once it started, they really kind of like started talking back to us right away in the sense that people were emailing us and talking about, you should do more, you should, you know, keep writing these reviews. They're really useful. They're great. Initially we had set it up so that we knew that one of the best ways we could, you know, sort of grow it and connect it to people was to make it relevant to our peers in the music industry. So one of the first things we did was we would um, tag restaurants with the music venues that they were closest to. And just because that was the sort of use case for us and for everyone we knew, which was that, you know, you go to shows all the time through, you know, three, four times a week sometimes. And the discussion come three o'clock every day in our offices was where we're eating before the show. And so we kind of felt like in the beginning, if we could make it useful to that group of people, then we could build on that. And that was really what ended up happening was that it was kind of the thing that people in the music business used for the first, call it like eight months until it started growing in concentric circles outside of that over time. Totally. And what, what led you to the impossible to spell immaculate infatuation? How did, how did, what's the story behind immaculate? Cause I actually had never heard that. That one, you just never heard the word before? In general. Oh, yeah. Okay, I got it. The story uh, of why you came to it, but also thinking back, probably no, I had not heard that word. I like to say somebody actually referenced this the other day. I can't remember who that I used to, t- I used to tell people that we changed it because the, um, New York archdiocese got mad at us for using the word <laughs> immaculate. And I think some people believed that. 
Um, that's this is Andrew's story. It's a story. I mean, it's of not. We when post- we were trying to figure out what to name it, it was. Do we do something like <laughs> lame, like Eats Beat? Because it was like we were from the music. <laughs> Business, but it was food, or, or something right? not lame, like or something just just something completely ridiculous <laughs> from the tube to the beat yeah. called Immaculate Infatuation. And Immaculate Infatuation, at its roots, was a British rock band that my friends and I dressed up as for Halloween in nineteen ninety nine or the uh, two thousand, some, something around there. And we painted the town in, in Ithaca. It was a ridiculous night. We all had fake names and it was a really successful coming out tour for Immaculate Infatuation. And it always, my friend Sean came up with that name. Great name. Name stuck with us. I submitted it to Diddy for making the band one. Uh, he rejected it. Weird. Uh, it became my fantasy football team name. We won some hardware a couple times. Haven't had much success lately though, but we're come maybe making a comeback at some point. Um, and then when we were thinking about ridiculous names for our venture, <laughs> we None threw- more ridiculous than Immaculate Infatuation. <laughs> yeah. So we, we actually were- just tried to make it as hard as possible for ourselves from day one. Let's yeah. make this extremely difficult for people in terms of finding us spell. I mean, we used to look at the Google analytics uh, from people, you know, that were like from Google, how they were getting. To oh, yeah. And you would watch people spell Immaculate with no eyes and just like. I, at one point, I think I literally would just mash on the keys yeah, and then yeah. put infatuation yeah. into Google, and then I would always wind yeah. up. We solved that problem, but then we still see now that people will spell infatuation with a C. Infatuation. Ah. Yeah. We need to talk about our education system here in the United <laughs> States of America. But I, act, I think it should be open for it, discussion. It ultimately led us to a good place because infatuation is a great name. It so is a fantastic name. It all I kind thought of, immaculate infatuation somehow, was pretty good, too. It was just hard to spell. Yeah, I mean, it literally was... Andrew used to be like, that That name is why we're successful. And I was like, no, I think we're successful in spite of it. <laughs> like we argued that was a lot, lot of our discussion. Chris wanted to change it. I was pro keep it. He was pro change it. Thank God we changed it. He usually, he's usually right about most of the big ideas. He about just needs to wear you down. Things. Yeah, I just don't like change. Yeah, I, I understand that completely. <laughs> so you blast it out. The initial response is really good, valuable. When did you start doing actual events? Because I came across the brand, I think it was like late 2010 or it might've been 2011 at the Turkey Leg Ball, like all the way on the West side. Yeah, um, that was the first one. That was September, 2010. Cool. So it was like a year and some change after we started. And it was weird because we were, you know, it was coming from the music business. That was sort of what you did, right? It was very similar to building a band, which was we were building this community and then we wanted to see who they were. So what you would do if you were a band was you would play a show. That would be how you'd be like, cool, do we have fans? Who are they? And so that's what we decided to do. And we rented this weird space out on the west side, like you said, right above the Lincoln Tunnel. And I think it had like a 400 person capacity. I think you must have found us through the apartment four that's group. Right. So we hired like our friends, one of our, one of a guy that I knew I worked with Atlantic had this like side hustle dinner party business thing. And we hired them to be the food part of the first ever turkey leg ball, which is what we called this event. Um, and then I think we got a couple brand sponsors, which is really interesting. The cooking channel and a Our couple calendar. other ones. Yep. But we were, we had never done an event before. We didn't really know, like we knew that we were building, you know, some audience of people that cared about this thing on some level, but we didn't know, you know, we, I don't, we literally put the tickets on sale on Eventbrite and then I think we put it in our newsletter and we hadn't even told our parents or our friends we were doing it and it sold out within like 20 minutes or an hour or something while we were both in meetings at our day jobs. That's amazing. 
So it was definitely like a moment where we were kind of surprised and super excited, but we were like, oh, wow. That was definitely like, who are these people? That was definitely one of the first moments where I think we both were like, whoa, like we, what is, what's going on? Like we have something happening here. Yeah. Because clearly I I remember that moment. So, so well, like I remember, I remember being talking, putting the tickets on sale, going into our marketing meeting at Warner Brothers Records and then coming back from the meeting and being like, what? (laughs) And like looking at all these people's names in the Eventbrite receipt ticket, ticket list and like not having any idea who anybody is and just like, this is unbelievable. Like what's, what is happening? Yeah. And one of those people was Phil Toronto. That's well, I actually didn't buy a ticket. I snuck in because I was, I was staff. I was serving people, which was, Oh, that's right. You were working, which was a disaster. Yeah, like, it was you, all bad for sure. Oh my God. We had no idea. I mean, that event was such, was the food was amazing. So like shout out Degro, Trouty. Yeah, but we only got to like the second Jay. course. Like we couldn't get the I don't food even out. Remember. I mean, it was I literally 10 years ago. There, was, there were traffic issues. There were traffic issues. I remember well, we also had like upstairs and someone downstairs. Almost, someone almost like died. That was bad. But it's true. Like we, there was like, yeah, there were lot, lots of issues, but it was, it was great. We learned a lot. <laughs> we, had great, class, we, we had great insurance. Recap. We learned a lot. People yeah. drank a lot. That was what we also learned is that our community loves a bar. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was awesome. It was the beginning of, I think us realizing that we did have something real and there was a real community behind it and that we could build it. And that was really how we just became obsessed with that from literally that day until today, essentially it's just been that sort of focus around building a community and trying to make it bigger. I remember looking, I remember printing out Turkey. Like we had a Turkey leg was our logo. I remember printing out color Turkey legs on our printer at Warner music group and like taping them to the walls. That was, (laughs) that was our event collateral like signage. Right. And now I look at what we do for our big events and our, and eats con and everything. I'm just like, wow, we have really. How far Can you imagine gone? if we hadn't evolved? Though we were still like. <laughs> no, I think but it's the just, next seats con, you should do a revert back yeah. to like this is vintage. We should do that. I, we still have all the signage. Yeah, at least Andrew one room. Wanted throw, yeah, Andrew exactly. Wanted to throw everything away, so they we have try. literally every piece of collateral and hates change. And trust me, they, it's a real thing. They want to get we, rid of stuff. I don't like throwing things away. I'm a pack rat. Right. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. So turkey leg ball, great success. Nobody died. Thank God. Uh, and then you, you keep writing the reviews. You guys were the ones that were putting in the work, fighting off gout, like really getting the people or what they need. just accepting it as reality. Exactly. Your life. My toe hurts. I don't know why. Who knows? When did you bring on your first outside writer and how did you get comfortable with doing that? We had a couple people we had help us here and there. Um, I guess that probably started in like 2013. Um, just because at some point we just needed help and it was different. I mean, it was, it was totally great. The people that we had helping us, um, at the time it served a purpose, but it wasn't, it wasn't the same as when we finally like hired someone and made a plan for expansion and a plan for codifying the voice and a plan for training people into the voice like that. I was basically just like taking anything that these freelancers wrote and trying to edit it into the voice myself. And that obviously wasn't going to be a scalable plan. So what we ended up happening is we, we built it, as a side hustle for five years and then left our jobs on the same day, April 1st of 2014 and then spent that year raising money. And then by the time October, late October had come around, we had finally raised our first round and hired our first employee, um, Hillary, who's still with us today as our editor in chief. And that was when we really began the process of how do we now expand this? Like I spent, you know, the first few weeks with her, just getting her ready to become a writer in her own right in New York. And then, helping talk through like, how do we blueprint this out so it can be replicated essentially? Yeah. I remember the first 
couple of reviews that I saw that said Hillary. I'm like, oh, no way. This is awesome. I'm like, <laughs> big shoes to fill. And yeah. review after review, I'm like, no, nope, she nailed it. She, she, she absolutely belongs here. Like, yeah. she's perfect. And big, one of the biggest things we realized really quickly was that we couldn't, I remember she and I having a conversation around humor and her kind of saying like, I don't, I'm not capable of, nor do I think I should like make the same kind of jokes that you might make in the review. And that was really important because it led us to this discussion of the fact that the voice could be different as long as the fundamentals were the same, meaning that, and I think it's true that if you read the infatuation, you know, London versus Chicago versus San Francisco versus Seattle versus New York, they all should sound broadly the same, but have little nuanced differences just based on the, because we don't want to wash wash away individuality, right? We didn't want to sort of like create something that sounded too robotic. You want personality, individual personalities to come through, but we had to figure out how to do that, but kind of keep it in with a certain guardrail, set of guardrails so that it had consistency. Totally. You didn't want a full dictatorship. No, I mean, I would prefer that to be the of course. way we run things around here, but it's not necessarily. Yeah. Dare smart. to dream. It's okay. Someday. When did you start acquiring Instagram handles? Because a lot of people don't realize that they give credit to Barstool and everything, but I don't know any company that was launching the the multi-media platform that you were across Instagram by just acquiring a mass number of handles that were relevant to the food world. Well, I, th- I think like we, we started in 2009 and we spent all our time on the on social and on the internet trying to get people who were having conversations around stuff that we were covering interested in what we were doing right so it started on twitter we were very active on twitter with just jumping in the conversations and spending time talking to people and trying to trying to get people to be aware of us and then as soon as instagram launched we were like okay this is like twitter but with pictures of food um even though i do remember in the early days of instagram i did not understand what was going on i was just like chronologically show, showing my life on instagram on our handles and staying was like dude what are you doing? They're like, <laughs> I would post dark photos of cocktails at bars. Time, without- yeah, there was like a picture. It was like a really dark bar and you just took a picture of like a mug of beer and like you could barely see the mug. And you were like at this bar. I remember being like, yo, I think we might want to refocus our strategy here. <laughs> Refine it slightly. Yeah. But we, but look, Instagram was a, was an amazing opportunity for us. And we kind of saw it for what it was, which is an opportunity to have a two way conversation with an audience. Right. And so, Initially, we used the infatuation site and infatuation Instagram account, Immaculate Infat, to, you know, garner community and talk to people and give people an opportunity to also get featured on our page. You know, back in the day, like nobody did that. Hey, do something and you'll get a regram. Like that wasn't a thing that existed. It became commonplace on the platform. But when we were doing it, not that we're like these big innovators or anything, but like, you know, we, McNano, Mike McNano, who, built, you know, anchor, Anchor. you know, he, he, he was, it was one of, he was key to us kind of seeing it for that. And like infatuation fam alone, for sure. He was actually the one that made us do the eats hashtag. Yeah. And And he he helped build the first app. He built the very first app. That was the app until like a couple of years ago. But you know, we launched the eats hashtag on Instagram and said, Hey, come and use this hashtag. And if your photo is great, it'll, we'll repost it. And that started a whole thing and helped us build community there. And as Instagram started to expand, um, you know, we kept looking for opportunities. So we made some friends at Instagram and saw that there were some dead accounts with like at burger and at pasta and at tacos and at coffee and at ice cream. And 
swipe those up and you know we now we run probably about 40 instagram accounts now between our main infatuation account and all the local handles for each market well, we actually split yeah we split the main account into local city accounts before we did anything before we grabbed all the other handles and that was actually a big like i remember having it was like a be like a summit about it with like the whole company <laughs> yeah. i think um and it actually proved to be the right thing to do just because we you know we needed to make it local so we split the first thing we did was split the main one off to and there was a main one and then an la one and then we realized that if there's an LA one, there should be a New York one. And that sort of led us to now having one for every market that we operate in. Including avocado toast. And that, yes. And then we have the, Huge. yeah, that one's powerful. Yeah. <laughs> Moves the needle. It can really break. You know, the, 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 we were going to make the avocado toast one a humor page, but we also, that wasn't really our game. But the fact that we actually do have an at avocado toast Instagram handle that has pictures of avocado toast on it is somewhat embarrassing. Yeah, Different I mean, strokes. I've always felt a certain way about that. <laughs> Stang doesn't love the food handles. That's fair. Back to the hashtag of eats. You continued with making it an easy brand to find by including eats with five yeah. E's. <laughs> See, just so you know, Phil, I'm a marketer. <laughs> through and through. Yeah, through and through. Um, yeah, that was, I mean, honestly, like that was, and it probably just even the immaculate infatuation thing. I think a lot of what we were trying to do without being able to articulately, art, articulately explain it is that we were basically trying to make all of this stuff not feel so, so damn serious. And I think that was what we found helped us connect to people was that when you, both when you help it feel like it's not so serious, sorry, when you make it feel less serious, more people feel like they can participate, right? That's number one. The other part is that, and this is the thing that people miss about us a lot, which is great and I love it, is they miss the fact that we are we we are so self-deprecating. Like we make as much fun of ourselves as anybody else might, you know, for the way we approach things. And that the way what that does though is it does the same thing, which is it makes you relatable to people and it helps you bring people, it brings you down to the same level as the person you're trying to talk to and makes you peers. And that's that's actually been a huge part of our strategy that's always worked really well for us. So yeah, the eats hashtag with five E's is is really dumb, but at the same time, people love it and interact with it because it feels fun and not so serious. Absolutely. And that was the key to all of it. And I think you know, we've, we've always, especially from like the quote unquote serious food media, like they've always sort of side eyed us or just straight up like talk shit about us because it, yes, on the surface is ridiculous. But I think what often is missed is that if you're going to relate to a lot of people, you need to figure out a way to be accessible and be on their same level and not talk down to them. And that's the whole thing that's led us to, you know, add several vowels to a hashtag <laughs> or to, you know, call a restaurant blog, immaculate infatuation. So I love it. Yeah, I still have to count every time I post, but I mean, we all do. Yeah, it's, it's great. No, it's worth it. I like the effort because it shows we care. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Attention to detail, man. Yeah. 2014 or 2015 after the fundraise and everything gearing up. When was the official rebrand to the infatuation? 2014, the same time. I kind of, we, I really felt like if we were going to start to become a serious company, we needed to be serious about our marketing and branding. So I guess the first step was, in 14, we took Immaculate off and just called it the infatuation. And then we did the logo redesign and all of that stuff. I actually think that was 16 now that I think about it. Um, but we needed to put a team together. We did all that in-house. We hired a guy that um, was our career director at the time that that ran that whole um, process. And, and it was really good for us. I mean, I think we knew that we had to evolve from this thing with a nine-syllable name and a hand-drawn logo that you couldn't, you know, 
see from far away on a poster or if you made it really small you couldn't understand what it was so again to our very very much in line with our brand and our company we redesigned our logo into something that we decided to call the ham horn which basically is a piece of meat with a machine gun handle that looks like a <laughs> megaphone so <laughs> got to stay true to our roots of yeah, accessible approachable yeah but I, but it's true like we sat there for months i mean months and went through i mean we had like an entire you know mood board across the entire office that we worked through to try and figure out what we were going to do and what we kept realizing is every time we tried to get to a place of like you know uh sort of serious you know uh branding it just all felt too serious it felt like we were being too off brand yeah and so then when we i don't even remember how it exactly happened but we got to this idea of the ham horn and it was just within like it was literally a conversation with me and tom the guy who was our uh creative director at the time, like in a room. And then I, I think I had said the word ham megaphone or something like that. And within 20, 20 minutes, he had sketched it and we were like, yes. Yeah. And then and it was funny because then we showed it to the company of, you know, all seven of us at the time. And it was like, everybody was like, oh my God, that's <laughs> it. How do we not, that's it. So here we are with the ham horn as a logo. You it's know? a great logo. It's a great logo. I love it. When did, uh, when did Texrex pop up? That was 15. like 15. Yeah, that was Cinco de Mayo of 2015. And I remember that date because we were not prepared to tell people where to drink margaritas outside. We kind of forgot that it was Cinco de Mayo. Um, but yeah, that was a that was a reaction largely to trying to figure out, you know, at the time that was really the heat of the algorithms becoming a new thing in social media, right? So Facebook algorithms had just been introduced and all the quote unquote media companies were trying to figure out how to like, you know, how their content reach people and how do you game that algorithm and what is Facebook trying to optimize for? And we just kind of felt like this is ridiculous. All we want to do is communicate with our core audience in a one-to-one manner. So I went and bought an iPhone uh, at the Apple store, connected it to computers on iCloud and decided that we were going to let people text us for restaurant recommendations. And it worked. All of a sudden people, in a couple of thousand people signed up for the service on the first day. And then we had to figure out what to do at that point. But um, it became a really, really important moment in the business for us because it helped us understand not only how to really effectively communicate with our audience, but it also, we realized immediately that it was the way that they were going to tell us what to do. So from the first day we opened up the phone line, so to speak, you would see these trends emerge of people asking for the same thing. And that became the entire thing that dedicated, de- dictated our editorial strategy totally. and in many ways still does today. So it actually, it gave us like a North star for the content in terms of how do we make sure we're connecting with people um, with content that they want and covering the market in the way that we need to. But it also gave us a huge advantage in SEO because it turned out that the things were that people were texting us, they were also typing into search fields. So the content we would create with that information would then rank really highly on Google search, which then changed us completely. Because I mean, even at the time we were never, we were not building a company that was meant to be distributed on Facebook, but um, what it meant that was we became a company who built on the back of SEO rather than Facebook. So even still today, I think it's like less than 4% of our site traffic comes from Facebook. That's great. And Textrex was the catalyst for that. And just to explicitly call it out, this is another example of the infatuation being incredibly early to launch a texting service in 2015. Yeah. Because, I mean, it started to pick up steam like, oh, you should have a texting strategy, maybe 2017, 2018. But you like, guys have been doing it. So. Yeah, it was like it was like a year before the maybe a little less than a year before the like the quote unquote bot thing, the chat bot right. thing happens. And it was way before Facebook, you know, inclu- put that into Messenger. And I mean, I think when we started it, it was a year before Twilio was even a thing, really. Um, 
Yeah. So we were really early to it, but I think also what we realized really quickly is it's very hard to scale. Yeah. And I think that's also what everybody that got into the chat game or the texting game has realized is that it's a great way to serve, you know, a relatively small audience of people, but at scale, it's almost impossible because you just, you need automation and the automation can't handle human conversations, complex ones at least. Yeah. Very effectively yet. I'm sure it's coming, but that's our whole plan with it is we're just waiting for the robots they're going to kill us all to come. yeah once they take us gonna, over and don't need restaurants we're gonna anymore train up the robots and then retire that's gonna be great yep to your point though i think we always just tried to think about places that people were spending their time and what we're where we can communicate and connect with the audience right so like Definitely. as opposed to following the script of building a media startup which we were not doing right we were just trying to build a brand that people could interact with and use in their daily lives so if it was you know instagram in the beginning and texting as a way to you know connect directly to people just always looking for opportunity to find the right avenue to have conversations with folks wait till you see our tiktok strategy oh i can't wait what is our mostly andrew just dancing around his bedroom oh that's cool huge i yeah it's actually my kids dancing um (laughs) i don't do much of that but well the the cheapest employees you could ever have yeah we've depended on child labor most of this most of this journey so (laughs) not true not true. Explicitly State not California true. <laughs> and I mean, you can still join Texrex to this day as long as you're a friend of the infatuation, which you launched this year. Um, what is a friend of the infatuation? Um, so that's essentially our membership program. What happened was we were spending a lot of time, you know, back to that 2010 example of our first ever event. Events have always been a really, really big part of what we do to the point now where I think we do a hundred or so a year. And and that now includes two major food festivals, one in LA and one in New York. And, um, a lot of what we were talking about, like, again, it was long before people really started putting up paywalls around content. We never wanted to do that. But a couple of years ago, it really started with us talking about the fact that we knew that we weren't doing a good job of getting our, of serving our most engaged, you know, community members, um, with the opportunity to go to, to our events, because what we would do is just send out an email saying, Hey, here's this great event we're doing with American express. There's a hundred seats, RSVP to the first person that RSVPs, you get your seat. And these things would fill up, you know, within a couple minutes. And what you realize is that actually the people that are, you know, responding though, obviously members of our community, they may not, you know, might just be the people that happen to see the email because they were sitting at their desk or had their phone in front of them. Whereas maybe, you know, some of the most absolute diehard members of our community, the Phil Toronto's, maybe you're in a meeting when that thing goes out. And then by the time you see it, it's full and that's a bummer. So we started thinking about what we could do around a membership program that might look a lot. It turned out that what we realized we were doing was creating a membership program that looked a lot like the models for the fan club models for bands. Meaning that like Bruno Mars, when he goes on tour, he doesn't put all of his tickets on sale at the same time. He goes to his most dedicated audience first and then they get first crack and then he opens it up to everyone. So that's a lot of what we're doing with even just to start with our members is giving them first crack at all these events that we do, which are often really cool events that are, you know, typically like food's covered. It's good food. Booze is covered. It's good booze. And also what we realize is that the community itself is really valuable. So, you know, lots of people would like to meet Phil Toronto at an infatuation event and vice versa. And we thought there's got to be some value in, in our ability to connect people to each other, especially in a world in which people I think feel more disconnected than ever. Um, you know, social media is like this kind of false sense of connectivity where you might talk to people all the time on yeah. the internet, but do you actually know them or know what they care about or who their friends and family are? Do you spend any time together? Like, and actually I think people are lonelier now than they have been in a long time. So we thought maybe there's a way that 
we can connect other people to each other under the banner of our brand around this membership thing. And we got really excited about that idea and then thought, well, there's other things that we should sort of make part of this exactly at that same time. You're starting to confront Textrex, which is really, really powerful and really good for us. But like, as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it gets harder to serve people with a level of quality that you want to serve them with. So we thought, why don't we put that into the membership paywall as a perk for only for members so that we make sure that the people that are using it are the ones that really, really want to get value out of the service rather than people just texting it to see what happens, which is what happens when it starts to grow beyond a certain point. Um, and then Andrew, you know, we've got great brand relationships. We realized that there's lots of stuff we could bake into that just with brand partners that would love to talk to the most engaged members of our community. So now, um, with this program, you get all that stuff, you get text tracks, you get the event access to the events. You also get, you know, uh, free classes from Equinox via project doing once a month. There's a class just for members with Equinox or doing discount with the Ace Hotel perk with Shake Shack so that members get something free at Shake Shack. And, you know, we have a bunch of other conversations going too with all the brand partners that we work with to like, have scalable opportunities for our members to get cool perks from brands. That starts to add up, right? You can sort of say, oh, all right, cool. I get that like the, you know, it's it's essentially $49 a, month, a year. Or if you, um, we also did our first ever VIP at EatsCon, our festival to only for Friends of the Infatuation, where we had like a member's lounge and you could get food delivered to you there from some of the best restaurants at EatsCon. So that, that one was- And like it a, worked great it worked for the great. record. People Not were, sarcastic. No, people were psyched. It was awesome. And so that's like the hundred dollar package that you get the membership for the year that allowed us to also then drive, you know, rather than just having a VIP ticket at our festival, it allowed us to like drive a, a real relationship with, you know, a consumer, so to speak, in using the festival as a way to launch that and build that relationship. And then we're actually using the last part of it is we're actually using the membership group to test travel guides. So, you know, we would always hear from people that we love the Mexico city restaurants guide or the Paris restaurants guide, but where do I stay when I go? You know, what else do I do besides, you know, fill my body with food? Um, and, uh, and so we're, we're sort of testing that with this group and seeing really good response. So it's, it's a new thing for us. It's sort of a way for us to, you know, build a different layer of, you know, community on top of what's already there and monetize that, but also to better serve those people. And, you know, as we've gotten, from the beginning, what we all, we sort of built the company with the principles of if somebody emailed us, we respond, right? And if you direct message us on Instagram, we respond. And we really, really believed, because that's how we saw successful bands build their audiences, that you just have to engage constantly with all of the people that care. But as we've scaled and become more of a mainstream product, it's harder to do that just because there are so many people now, yeah. which is a wonderful thing. But the membership model is actually a way for us to kind of get back to our roots in that sense, which is just like, cool, let's make sure we know who you are, meaning that you're someone who wants every piece of this and you want to get as much out of this relationship with the brand as you as possible we want to super serve you but it's just now we know who you are and that was harder you know we were we were we were dealing with that sort of those frustrations of scale as we were building the last couple of years because it just became harder to serve the community in the way we wanted to and if you're looking and thirsty enough to want the green bubble from the infatuation account join friend of the infatuation you get added right. to close friends we did we decided that one of the cool perks would be to to post up to close friends on the um, local Instagram. And that's been fun too, because that's also, that's the, that's sort of the perfect example of something that you wouldn't do with the larger audience. But now, because we know who those people are and we know they, that they're connected to us in a different way, it's, we have so much more freedom to mess around and test stuff and do things we wouldn't do on the main account because you just, it's a broader audience. So that's been really fun. And the plan is to scale it, you know, right now it's a New York only program, but the plan is to scale around the country in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months. Hell yeah. 
taking a couple steps back because we jumped to friend of the infatuation. What pushed you over the edge to make the actual push to do the first EatsCon in LA at the Barker Hangar? Because it was, again, in my opinion, I hadn't seen any event like it. It was the first of its kind food experience. I, I won't label it a festival or whatever. It wasn't a festival. It was, it was very unique and it captured the brand perfectly. And it, it showcased a bunch of restaurants that I had an experience and there was also great programming. What led you to that to do like, fuck it, let's do it. Because it was the largest event that you had done to date. It was kind of that. It was kind of a fuck it, let's do it thing. I mean, we had talked about dipping our toe in the water a little bit more and should we just like rent out a hotel ballroom somewhere and try to fill it with 200 people and see what happens. But I think the more we talked about that, the more we realized that that wasn't the way to go about it. And, um, you know, so we started, we knew that we would probably be smart to try it in LA before New York because we were building in LA and we're building a community there, but it just felt like if we screw it up, there was, we didn't have this like 10 year or eight year at the time relationship to put it on the line because we, we had no idea what we were doing, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it came down to, we started looking at venues and we found the Barker hangar and we were kind of like, this is perfect. And the Barker, the people that run the Barker hangar actually were, they were very helpful because they basically said to us, if you're going to rent this venue out they, and they don't let anybody, they're not just, they don't just let anyone rent it out because they've had some bad experiences. They said, look, if you want to do this here, you know, in this gigantic tin can, which is essentially what the hangar is, I think altogether it's something like 60 or 70,000 square feet between indoors and outdoors. And they were kind of like, if you're going to do this, you have to throw, you have to go all in. You can't, you can't like spend all your money renting the space out and then roll up in here with like folding tables, which I think another, I can't remember who had done it, but there was another food festival that had tried that a couple of years before. And it was a disaster because you got to, you got to sort of, you know, rise up to the scale of the space. We kind of just looked at each other and said, okay, I guess we're doing this and, um, figured it out. And I guess, you know, we probably benefited from the fact that we hadn't done it before and we didn't, you know, know the things that we shouldn't do and kind of just to your point, created something that felt like, you know, try, we were just sort of trying to do some world building. We wanted to see like, what would the infatuation brand, you know, what, if it comes, if it comes to life in the physical space, what does that mean? And what does it look like? And kind of the freedom to do whatever we wanted. And, you know, from our perspective, I think we went into it saying, okay, look, we think we can sell the tickets and then let's just make sure that two things don't happen. Let's not run out of food and let's not have, let's, let's have enough bathrooms. And figure if we did those two things, then yeah. the rest of it would fall into place. And it was great. I mean, looking back on that first one in May of 2017, it's, we like, I look back and think like, God, we had no idea what we were doing, <laughs> but it was, you know, it worked. It yeah. was, people had a good time and now we'll be going into our fourth year in LA in May and it's two days now. And, you know, now we know what we're doing, which has been great. And we've done it in New York now twice. And even New York, we're still learning how to, you know, it's, it gets harder because it gets bigger. And yeah. so it, as it gets bigger, it gets more complex and you run into more issues. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been wild. I mean, running a live event at that scale is no joke. So we're still fighting it out every day, but we also do everything in house. We produce the whole thing in house. We do, we're very much, we want to be in control of the end result. Totally. But also that look, the whole, the whole reason why EatsCon, you know, has been, it's very different from all the other food festivals on the market. You know, now there's a bunch of other stuff that's coming to market. That's, you know, challenging, but like, you know, it's not New York city, food and wine, Miami, Aspen, like all these more traditional tents and tastings and celebrity chef style, really expensive ticket events. 
you know, we had for, for 10 years, we had those folks coming at us being like, Hey, get involved, get involved. And we're like, nah, that's not, that's not really our brand. And for a long time, you know, obviously we came up in the music business. We're very familiar with the festival circuit. We had worked really closely with the governor's ball guys here in New York, helping them curate uh, some of the food vendors. We'd also done some stuff with Coachella and outside lands and Lollapalooza over the years. So, you know, having, having gotten a really good dose of like how, Food and, and vending works within those ecosystems, having learned a lot of that stuff and then being able to apply it to what we were doing um, was really helpful. And also knowing that, look, our audience is a different kind of audience. It's not the audience that's buying tickets to go to Aspen for food and wine, yeah. right? Like it's they want a cheaper ticket, a more exciting, culturally relevant overall experience. And that was what we really wanted to try and give them. Also, fun fact. First place I ever heard of Lizzo in 2017 was at the first Eats Con. Yeah. She played yeah. and she fucking I, killed it. It was amazing. And it was funny because like we we booked her. She was signed to Atlantic. She is signed to Atlantic Records, the label I used to work for. And I'd seen her at a show and reached out to my coworkers there. And they were just getting started with her. It was the very, very beginning. And they were, I was like, this is this festival we're doing. They're like, what are you talking about? And I was like, we want to book Lizzo. And it just worked out. She was in town and uh, it was looking back on it, it was just, it's hilarious. Cause yeah. I have video, you know, of her on the stage in this airplane hangar at like seven o'clock at night. And yeah. <laughs> it's just funny, but yeah. My biggest, one of my biggest regrets with the infatuation is the year we, so we had Lizzo in 17, two years before she blew up in 16, I was offered before Billie Eilish was anything. I was offered Billie Eilish for a South by Southwest event. And she was like $3,000 more than we had like a $2,000 budget. And I think she cost yeah. like five grand and I'd never heard of her. And was just like, eh, my friend at Interscope. I was like, I don't know. Like we just, we don't really have that much money to spend. I'll just go with some, but something else that's in the budget range. And fuck man, we could have had Billie Eilish and Lizzo. then Lizzo. Ugh. It's okay. You won't miss the next one. That's right. Won't miss the next one. Two more topics I want to cover. Then I'll let you get on your day. Cause you're a very important businessman and I appreciate you taking the time. You bought an iconic brand in the food media space recently and just relaunched back into the New York market. I wanted to avoid trying to say this first, but I'm going to, I'm going to take a Zagat. Nailed it. Look yes. at you. Yes. Well done. That was 20 minutes in the mirror this morning, practicing, <laughs> staring myself that's in what, the that's face. That's how I start most of my days. I practice it. <laughs> Some people have affirmations. I just say Zagat. Yeah, I do too. Same thing. I love it. Yeah what's the, what that you can share? What's the background? Like, how did that come to be? Cause that, I mean, Google bought the brand for a sizable chunk of change. Yeah. Um, unfortunately didn't give it the attention it probably deserved given the history and everything. There's a lovely media company in New York city that definitely could. And you wound up acquiring the brand. Mm -hmm. How did it come to be? Uh, I got an email from Google one day. Great. Literally, that's how it started. I was in London with our team over there because we've been spending a bunch of time over there building up our London presence. We have an office there with five people that run it now. And um, I was over there. There was a conference I was at or something. And I was coming back. It was a Friday night in London. So pretty early San Francisco time still. And I got an email from someone on the corp dev team that was like, hey, we're going to sell Zagat. Want to talk? And I was kind of like, I can't really think about this right now. And went to dinner with my team. And then um, yeah, that weekend we started sketching out like how to respond. And if we thought there was a path to something that would make sense. And the more we thought about it, the more we got excited about the idea that, 
I mean, basically what was happening at that time was we were realizing, you know, not that we didn't know this was going to be a reality in the beginning, but you really do start to confront the fact that, you know, moving city by city with a, you know, highly trained, skilled group of people who write the content and go to the restaurants anonymously and pay for their own meals. Like it's hard to become a global entity, you know, that way, unless you have like $300 million in 30 years, which neither of those are things that we were, you know, angling for. So you knew at some point that you were going to have to confront user generated content as a way to scale. Um, and I think we were always struggling with the idea of what that looks, what that would look like coupled with that sort of trademark infatuation, strong point of view. Um, and so even in that early 2017 time, we were like having our, I was having our product team sketch out, you know, basically UX designs that would include the infatuation editorial with, you know, a community score of some sort. And, you know, there were ways that we thought it might work, but it was pretty challenging to imagine how you could pull it off without it being really confusing to the user. So when the email from Google came across, it started the thought process around, could we do the user generated thing on Zagat and then kind of keep these two brands separate while we built and then find efficiencies between the two. And the thing that led us to that idea was that a lot of people don't realize that Zagat has always been user generated. It was actually the first, Zagat was the first time in history back in 1979 and all the way up until, you know, basically Google bought it. It's the first time that a non-professional restaurant critic could have, could write a review of a restaurant. You know, Tim and Nina, the founders would put surveys into their friends' hands and ultimately into a lot of other people's hands, ask them their favorite restaurants to rate them and to write blurbs. And then what would come back, they would put, you know, turn into the, you know, those sort of iconic blurbs that are really a, you know, summation of a bunch of people's opinions. So we thought, you know, could we take Zagat back to its user generated roots, build something that looks a lot like, you know, Yelp, but not as bad, um, and use 10 years of domain expertise and 40 years of, you know, the Zagat brand to help make something more trustworthy, more useful, do it in a different space than the infatuation, even though they largely serve the same purpose, give us twice as much market share, all that. And that's what happened. So we bought it, closed the deal in um, March of 2018. And then really since then had been just under the hood, reworking things and reconnecting stuff and rebuilding things. One of the first things we knew we wanted to do is put the book back out in the market, uh, at least in New York. This is the 40th anniversary for, of Zagat this year. It felt like an opportunity to do something for the 40th anniversary. Um, so we did that. We made a book, which was a crazy experience. And it came out on Tuesday. And by the end of the day, Tuesday, we were the number 11 selling book na nationally on Amazon, which That's is pretty amazing. Wild. I didn't so, know that. Congrats. It's yeah. huge. Yeah. It was such an amazing moment because I think it really reminded everybody, you know, how powerful the brand still is, even though it's, you know, it's certainly not where it was, you know, back in the nineties, but, um, it's the most successful brand that's ever existed in this space. So when you see, you know, when you put a book out and you see that response, it really does remind you how big this thing is and how much potential there is bottled up inside of it. And we just have to unleash it. So that's what we're focused on. So we'll, you know, the book's out, feels really good, but now we, we sort of roll into a period of, um, leading up to launching a new platform, a new digital platform, which will come out, um, sometime next year and we'll really be the, that's really what we're focused on. So, um, hard at work building that now and you'll start to see stuff roll out in the next basically like few months. So amazing. Yeah. Anything else that you want to share about the future of the infatuation that people can look forward to? And the answer could be wait and see space. We're going to, we're going to space at some point. Shit. Yeah. First review on Mars. Yeah. Something like that. I don't know. We'll see. 
Stang's goal in life is to get to space. So I hope that we can enable that. Yeah. I, yeah. I, now that I know that, I want to make that happen. You're going to be like, the thing you said about chatbots, you're going to be like, yeah, those guys were on to space yeah, way before yeah. anybody else. <laughs> they were talking really Mars early. in like yeah, 2019. Super early yeah. on. It's amazing. Yeah. I won't ask you favorite restaurants, but if you're at a restaurant and there is a, this dish on the menu, what do you order every time? Like, it's like, it's always that. Because mine's seafood salad. It's the weirdest thing. But Seafood salad? Seafood salad. So random, How dude. often do you find that? Not enough, which is why I get so excited where anytime that or anything with squid in general, but oh, a, a nice about you. seafood salad with a vinegar dressing. Hmm. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Shouldn't you be Toronto squid then instead of Toronto tartar? doesn't roll off the tongue. It <laughs> kind of just plops like Toronto squid. Yeah. I like it though. Yeah. Uh, I don't have anything that interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm the guy that'll usually go for a pasta at all costs, but I like buffalo wings. Cereal. You need some cereal. Oh, yeah. You need cereal show. isn't cereal. Yes, I like cereal. I mean, if we're talking about a grocery store, then <laughs> you will always find cereal in my it's funny. Cart. It's funny because we still, even though we don't write the reviews anymore, you know, the restaurants always have like pictures of the people that write reviews. And it's funny because they're always so wrong. It's always <laughs> so out of date. Like I'll have pictures of me and Andrew up in the back of a restaurant kitchen, but like Hannah and Brian and Matt, the people that are actually on the front lines every day, they're like, you know, they don't even have them up there. But what's really funny is they'll have what that somebody compiles into like our tastes and distastes. <laughs> and it's amazing because it's also always wrong. Like I'll never forget one of them. Um, one of mine said something like, um, like loves uh, sea urchin and then like hates sea urchin. It was on the same thing. Oh, wow. And you're like, this is bad. Real this existential really Do you like sea urchin? I go both ways. So they're probably right. But I was going to say, we should check. <laughs> we should actually check because I bet a lot of them say that you, they know you love cereal. And if so, smart restaurant, I'm surprised smart restaurants haven't been like, let's throw some let's fruit loops cereal, on, some frosted flakes on this menu to get Andrew Steinthal fired up. I don't necessarily want cereal in my restaurant experience. I, understand I want that. cereal at home on my couch or sitting as a snack at work, any of those kinds of things. But Do if you cereal have cereal here, I don't think I've ever seen yeah. any cereal at work. We got, got life in rotation here. It's not, it's not an everyday thing, but it's like, instead of a cookie or something in the I middle see. of the day, I'll have a bowl of uh, cereal with one of the lovely almond or oat milks that we now stock uh, instead uh, of plant milks. Yeah. yeah whatever, whatever's so going right on. Now. I'm actually huge. Like I'm shocked at how much I like oat milk. Oat milk is massive. It's it's so good. Massive. It's Came so good. Nowhere. I was such Came a hater Sweden, too. Sweden, which is the same thing. So. Oh, fair. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, second to last question. And I, I actually didn't know that you use code names for reservations until we went to dinner at Moo Ramen oh, yeah. in Long Island City yeah. and you used Star Fox as the <laughs> oh, name yeah. for the reservation. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely yeah. a stag name. Very, very yeah. perplexing. Yeah. Do you that have did, any did favorites? People over the years that you've used I'm really that you my, maybe can't disclose because you might use I'll, them again. I'll, so. I'll throw mine out there right now because I'll, I'll just throw it away and make a new one. I've really been into this one because it's actually the best part about it is when you have to tell your friend or, you know, business <laughs> client that you're meeting what, um, what name the reservation is on. And it's, it's really, really awesome. Uh, hold on. I got to remember what the last name is. Um, it's so awesome. He can't remember it. <laughs> my, my current one is Cleland Southwell. <laughs> I don't know, man. He's had a lot of fun with these names. Over it's one of the, my favorite parts the, of the job. Over oh, the yeah. Up with aliases. They make it harder than now because they just connect your, your reservation accounts to a, a phone, phone number. number. Yeah. So now I've had to have burner. So now I, I, I create, um, he's keeping track phone and it's business. One of, it's really fun for me. I do. Uh, I just create Google phone numbers and then I change it. <laughs> do you have any? I've been really simple. This is, not, your, this is your not, wife's name at this point, right? I'm not going to share what my alias is. I love that. It's consistent. Mystery. 
Which is the fact that it's consistent means that it's useless. They all know who you are. It doesn't matter. But at this point, it doesn't matter because... There, we, he's not writing the review. No, no, but anywhere. where's the joy, though? The joy is the fact that, as you said, it's all connected to your app, to the apps and the fo- emails and the phone numbers, and it's almost harder to create. I mean, it is harder to create aliases these days and actually make a reservation. It's not like you're just calling and being like, hey, I'm going to make a reservation for Brian which New York City restaurants, if... Now you're blowing he, him up. What are what? you doing? He changed that years no, ago. No, he did it. What do you mean? No, he still uses it. Oh, my bad. Okay, that's nothing. Don't worry about that. We'll bleep that out. My other one was Chauncey O'Reilly. I like that one a lot, too. <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> Last question. Do you have a life motto or mantra that you apply just to whatever? Because mine's don't take life too seriously. You'll never get out alive from Van Wilder. Oh, that's really and good. And I think that's why I resonate with the infatuation brand so much. Cause I like that it's a lot. just fun. Yeah. I don't know. That my, I mom, my mom, the, <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, it's not, but uh, you always make your own good time in life. I think that that's an important motto to live by at least. Wendy Steinthal's a wise woman. That much yeah, she, she's wise. And you just, you always got to remember to have fun and that you are in control of your own destiny as it relates to your happiness. So. I love that. I heard a good one. I don't live by this because it's new, but I'm going to try. Uh, I'm going to paint it on our wall, the new office for <laughs> no, sure. It was actually really good. Actually, I, somebody, I was at, um, I was at a conference and I heard, uh, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, the woman who's the chairman, president, and CEO of IBM. Um, I can't remember the name of her. I'm really sorry for, I'm sure she's listening. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> she said something that I was actually, they asked her, what, when you look back on your career, um, what is the thing that you've, that was like, what did you learn overall? And she said that the thing that she really looking back that was, became apparent to her was that um, growth and comfort will never coexist. And I like that. That's really good. Yeah. We're in on a serious note. Think about that. Ooh. I, I guess I should just knock the mic over. I can't drop it. We're not holding it. But that was it. Yeah. Thank you it. guys for making the time. Thank you. The infatuation. Cleveland Southwell signs off. Let's blow this Toronto Tartar podcast up, man. Put me on all the social. Done. Tartar Project, episode 20, in the books. Thank you again for tuning in. Again, follow me on Spotify, five stars on iTunes, super helpful. Tell your friends all about it. Either way, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for dedicating your time to listening to us rip about brands. I truly appreciate it. I truly appreciate you tuning in and I'll catch you next week.